Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for just this time we have together this morning to open your word, to allow it to, to speak to us, to meet us where we're at here this morning, the hopes that we bring, the burdens that we carry. Lord, I pray that you would use my mouth and these words this morning to declare your word with accuracy and a message of hope that would heal the brokenness that we all have. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I want to start this morning with three questions, and I want you to respond by raising your hands to at least the first two. The first one is, how many people this week have been asked, how are you doing? How's it going? How's the family? You know, you have friends that they're checking up on you. Okay. Question two. How many people responded with the typical, I'm fine, great, wonderful, how are you? Right? Okay. Now, the third question. And again, the brave can raise their hands, the rest can just think about it. How many people are not doing as well as they indicated? You know? How's the family? Wonderful. Great. I really wanted to strangle them this week, but it's good. Wonderful. Great. Well, how's work? Oh, it's great. How about yours? And inside you're thinking, I feel completely inferior to the task. I might lose my job at any moment, and every day is consumed with fear. Wonderful. Great. How are you? This is how we typically work, right? We go through the greetings, and and what happens is often we... We paint this Christian smile on a canvas of sorrow. And we pray that people don't see beneath those layers of paint about what's really happening inside. So we do the handshakes, we give the greetings, and then we hope that no one really sees. This is who I want to to speak with this morning, because I'm there with a message of hope. What does God have to say to to people like us? People who we may look fine, but we're not doing fine. The the hopes that we have have been dashed against the the harsh realities of life. and The dreams that were once great are now just broken. We used to have this fervor, and now it's just fear. So what does God have to say to us? People like us. And that's why this morning I want us to, to look at chapter 4 in the Gospel of Luke. And, and you can go ahead and, and turn there. And it's this great account where Jesus actually stands up in front of a group of people and he says, Hey, this is my job title. This is who I am and this is what I do. And my question is, what does that mean for us today? Because in this context, I think so often, you know, we look at the events of Jesus, the the miracles that he has, and and even his death and resurrection, and we look at these individual events, and and we lose the the larger context that they occurred in. And here, the, the interesting thing about Luke is he's the only one who records all the details about this event. The other thing is he places it early in his narrative. And I believe this is critical to understand the importance of this passage. 
because it actually occurs over a year into Jesus' ministry. He ministered for three, three and a half years. And we're already a year into it. But Luke, if you look at like early in chapter 4, it says the temptation. And then in verses 14 and 15, it says, yeah, and Jesus has been working. That's actually a year. And his reputation was growing. Now, at the point that we pick this story up, you'll know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised most of his life in Nazareth. But then he moved away, about 20 miles northeast to a city named uh, Capernaum. And this is right along the north northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's important to kind of understand what's happening. So he's been ministering in the area of Galilee. His reputation's growing. And it's the good old hometown boy coming back for the church service. And that's where we pick it up in verse 16 that we'll be looking at this morning. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. I want to pause there for a minute because I want to kind of just give a picture. I like being able to understand the setting that the story is being told. These are actual events, but it helps me to understand that their worship service was not like ours. Okay, They actually didn't just have one speaker, they had seven. The priest would go first, then a Levite. And then five men from the congregation would be invited to participate. They could either just read a portion of scripture or they also had the opportunity to talk about it. They would actually begin early in the law and then move through the prophets. So it seems like Jesus is very likely the last of the five from the congregation. You know, the hometown boy coming to the synagogue. Let's allow him to have the opportunity. So it says, he stood up to read, which was the custom, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He didn't always get to like pick where he read from. It was given to him. And he then turned, it says, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written these words. What we know as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant and sits down. Now, just to kind of understand, this doesn't mean, okay, I'm done reading, I don't want to read a lot, sit down. This is how they would have done things if he wanted to speak. You stood to read, and then you sat to speak. If you read a long portion of scripture, that's all you had to do according to the rabbinic tradition. If you read a short portion of scripture, it was expected that you would say something. So as he sits down, that's why it says all the eyes are now looking at him. What's he going to say? What's going to be his comment to this passage? Right? It'd be like a great speaker coming up And you want to hear what he has to say. And he stands up here at the podium in silence. And you're kind of waiting and anticipating. What's he going to say? And that's what's happening here. That they want to hear what Jesus is going to say. And then he says these amazing words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, this is absolutely phenomenal. 
This passage was written 700 years before Christ as a prophecy to the Messiah. And here Jesus is saying, yep, that's me, the anointed one. Yep, I'm going to do all this. This is what I'm about. These are my job descriptions. To proclaim good news to the poor. Sent me to proclaim liberty for the captives. I'm here and I'm doing it. And everything that follows is in the context of this title and job description. Now the people of Nazareth, they're thinking, Jesus, hometown boy, the, the son of Joseph and Mary, really? I babysat this boy. I changed his diaper. Messiah? <laughs> nah, uh-uh. Not buying it. So they actually reject him. We're not going to go through that portion. But my prayer is that our response is very different. And that as we start to unfold this portion of Scripture that Jesus is claiming for himself, that it will speak to our situation the way that he describes those that he ministers to would speak to us. And that the ministry that Jesus has to these people would be an encouragement and would truly be a message of lasting hope. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 61, I want to use this passage as we walk through it in the original context. And just to kind of tell you where I want to go with this is I put a lot of study into the original languages of these words. Um, in Luke, it would be in Greek. In Isaiah, it would be Hebrew. And, and the reason is, sometimes I get familiar with these passages. Do you know, I mean, we read them, we hear them. Yes, bind up the broken heart. It isn't, yay, wonderful, fuzzy, feel-good feelings. And we don't understand the depth that there's a, a reality behind these words. Uh, of who Jesus is and, and how he's working that we can miss if we're over familiar. And I want it to look at, at the depth of meaning and, and my hope is that we will just jump in with both feet. Discovering the depths uh, of these phrases and that God will use that to speak to your heart. And so my prayer is as we look at this that you would allow the Holy Spirit to search who you really are. And not the exterior, not how people around you see you. But really where you're at this morning. Uh, allow God to, to sift through those realities. And speak to you with the truth of these words. As it begins in, in the first verse of chapter 61 in Isaiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. Now, this is what Jesus is saying of himself. This is true. You see the Trinity there. The Spirit of the Sovereign of the Lord God is on me. He's anointed me. That's his job to title. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. There's nothing hidden. Jesus starts the ministry. Luke wanted Theophilus, the man whom the book was written, to understand this. Jesus is saying he's the Messiah, and this is what he's going to do. And he says what he's going to do in that job title. And he begins by saying to bring good news to the poor. Now, I want to skip over this idea of good news. And we're going to come back and actually close with that idea. And look at, at what it means uh, for the poor. Does that describe us? Would Jesus want anything to do with us? 
this morning? I mean, who would he speak to? Who would he hang out with at the picnic after church? Poor. You know, there's a positive way of saying it and how we often think about it. It can mean humble or meek. I mean, we kind of see those as positive terms, right? Jesus used the same word in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Right? But you know that's the only positive synonym used for this word? Or how it can be translated? It can also mean beggarly. It really can mean you don't have a lot of money. You're not rich, you're not important. It can mean you're destitute. You feel of little value. If we were to be honest, a wallflower, lost in a crowd. Like you could stand on a stage with spotlight shining on you. And everybody sees you, but they don't really know you. Not what's inside. Not what's really happening. Crowds go by and you, and you begin to ask yourself, you know, if I wasn't here tomorrow, would anybody care? Would they notice? Would the world be any different because I was here? Those kind of questions. The poor. And it says Jesus goes to them. I mean, I think about the, the little tax collector, Zacchaeus. Do you remember him? You know, nobody likes him, the short guy. He can't see above the waistline of everybody. So he climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And who does Jesus notice? The rich, the powerful, the important? Nah, he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. He says, come down. Sometimes I wonder if, if there's people here like that, you know? You snuck in the church and you're hiding in the back or somewhere in the middle and... It, and you just want to sing some songs, hear a message, and go home. Because you're scared. You didn't have anything to do with this. You have no position here at the church. You're of no great importance. And so you come and you leave and, and you feel lost. Does anybody know your name? And, and what this is saying to me here, that, that Jesus goes to people like that and he'll find you. If he were to walk through these doors right now, He's going to come and sit next to you. Give you a hug and say, Hi, my name's Jesus. What's your name? And then, most likely, in keeping with how he does things, he's probably going to invite himself to dinner at your house tonight. Because <laughs> that's just kind of how it works, right? But, but this is the idea I want us to see. This is his job description. This is what he did, and this is what he does. That you're not lost in a crowd. There is someone whose name is Jesus that's looking for you. He goes on to say, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now this is a phrase I, I love. It, it's rooted in, in the idea of the heart. Not just speaking of, of um, the organ, but that inner person. That true self who, who's really you that, that person that, that makes you different from everybody else 
that's what this is, is speaking to here. It's talking about your, your, your mind, your soul, your spirit. It's actually talking about the volition of your will. What makes you do things the way you, you do them? It's talking about your feelings. It's talking about how you think behind the, the actions. Getting into to who you really are. That Jesus wants to come to. But the reality is that true self, who you really are, is broken. The broken hearted. These aren't the whole hearted. These aren't the I have everything together. This is the I just feel crushed inside. Life hasn't turned out the way I thought. The hope I once had is gone. And I hide behind a smile. It's fine. It's fine. And it's not fine. And it says that Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Now see, this is a great word. You know it can also be translated surgeon or remedy or cure. I'm taking medication now for bronchitis, right? Or if you have um, clogged arteries, your doctor's not going to tell you to put a band-aid on your chest and everything's fine, right? No. It's the, it's the same thing here. There's something that, that's internally that's broken. And God is sent to, to bind that up, to go beneath the exterior, to go beneath how other people see you, to go into that true self and piece you back together. Amen. It's good stuff, isn't it? You know, I, it reminds me of a time when we lived in Frederick, and my wife used to collect these um, precious moments figurines. We had one for our marriage and when the kids, when we knew we were expecting and when they were born and they were all sitting up on a shelf in our bedroom right next to my desk. Well, one day I dropped something on the floor and I bent down to pick it up and when I stood, you can kind of see where this is going. I'm tall enough that my head went through the shelf and down came the precious moments, these pretty little ceramic figurines. Well, my wife hears the noise, comes rushing in, and it looks like a massacre. I mean, there's heads broken open on the floor. There's body parts all over. And she just starts crying and leaves. And I'm just like, what did I do? I killed them all. <laughs> so, I, you know, gather up all the pieces I can find. And then later, I went down onto the, the kitchen table. And I had to start to, like, sort through the pieces. Which one belongs to which figurine? And then sit there with the, the super glue and put them each back together. It wasn't perfect. One still had a little hole in its head. But for the most part, it was okay. But isn't that what God does for us? I mean, it's like these shattered pieces in the room. And God says, no, this one is, is uniquely yours. These are your pieces. And these are yours over here. And he begins to separate who you really are. And then... He goes through the, the intricate and careful task of piecing you together, piece by piece by piece. That's what it means to bind up the brokenhearted. That's who we are. That's who Jesus was sent to. That, that's who he likes hanging out with. Not those who have it all put together, but the reality that we're not all put together. 
We're broken. He goes on to say, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I want to take these two ideas together, the idea of captive and bound, because they're similar and yet they're different. On the one hand, you have the captives, right? And that literally means like you're speared, you're being carried away. There's a sense of transport to the idea. You're enslaved and you're moving off. You've been captive. Okay? Now, in my mind, in the way this word is moving, in the difference from bound that we're going to talk about, it's this sense of, of resistance in the movement of the word. It's like if, if you have an addiction, that this hidden sin that you think nobody knows about, you're looking at pornography, you're sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're overeating to comfort yourself, you're cutting yourself to hide the pain. And so what you do is you end up falling you say, I don't want to be that person. I shouldn't be doing that. And you try to move away from it. And it's okay for a while, right? But then the brokenness of life comes and you just want to ease that pain a bit. And so you give in. But then that's just like, it's putting more chains around your feet and it's making it harder and harder to pull away. And it's, it's around and around with this movement and this struggle against it. You don't want anybody to know because this time it's going to be different. But it's not. It's the same idea in Luke when it said to give sight to the blind. There was a sense of darkness. It's like being trapped in a room with the lights off and you can't find the door. And so you just wander around in the darkness saying it's going to be different, but all the while... You're completely shackled and captivated. Now, on the other side, you have the bound. Now, the difference here is there is no transport. You're in the prison cell. There's no movement. The, the, the struggle you used to have, well, it's not a struggle anymore. That's just who you are. And we begin to rationalize sin. And we just sit and we wallow in our despair. And we say, I guess this is what it means to be me. And you excuse the sin and you just wallow in it. That's the difference. And yet Jesus says that he came to, to proclaim liberty to, to those who are captivated and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now think about this. Jesus doesn't like knock on the door of our prison and say, What happened, man? I told you, you reap what you sow. I mean, how did you end up here? Really? That's all better you could do. Or, or, or over here to the captives and saying, see, just, just try harder, man. That's not what it's about. That's not what he says. He says no to proclaim liberty, to, to, to break open the prison doors. I, I like these um, spy special ops kind of movies and books. And so in my mind, it goes to like this expert Navy SEAL. He just goes through the enemy lines, blowing away the enemies, and goes in to rescue the hostage. That's what it's talking about, right? The Redeemer. Yeah, you're locked away in prison, and he's going to bust through, open up the doors to that prison, break the chains that hold us captive, 
and free us. Freedom. That's why he set us free. Now let's be honest, sometimes the prison door is open. We've been released and we like to go back in and look around just to see how it once was. Now we're going to kind of get to that in a bit. But the reality is, he sets us free. Now there's a beautiful word picture that's happening here that's talking about um, the year of Jubilee. And I don't know if you're, you're familiar with it. It's, it's talked about in, in Leviticus chapter 25. We're not going to turn there, but I do want to explain it because there's such a wordplay that's happening in this passage that's looking to what God established in Israel as the year of Jubilee. Now, you'll remember that when God created the earth, he, he created it in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The Sabbath day, the Sabbath rest. And, and we are still to... To watch that and, and to be mindful of that and to have one day a week where we rest and say, I'm not God. The world keeps spinning, life moves on, even when I'm sitting on my butt. It's humbling. And we have rest. What well, says every seven years there was a sabbatical year that was established. Now in this year, if you were a farmer, it was set up in such a way where it was like a rest for the land. You weren't allowed to plant anything or even harvest, and whatever grew spontaneously from the seeds of past years didn't actually belong to you. It belonged to, to the poor and to the foreigner in the community. And so they were able to eat whatever was needed. And God said that he would take care of them and, and provide an abundance the year prior to the sabbatical year. Now, after seven sabbatical years, in the 50th year was to be the year of Jubilee. Now this was an incredible time where it was redemption for the whole community. If you were locked away in, in federal prison, you know, the county jail, you were released. Free. If you had a debt with the bank for a nice building synagogue, erased. If you were a slave, you were freed. Even if you fell on financial hard times because of a recession and had to sell land and property that had belonged to your family for hundreds of years, in the year of Jubilee, it would be given back. It was total and absolute redemption. That's what Jesus is referring to here when he says, proclaim liberty, opening up the prison. And then he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This isn't temporary. This isn't just one year. This is an absolute, total aspect. What Jesus says today, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. Staggering, staggering claim that he was, he was claiming this is what's true. But this is also what I think at, at times is, is most difficult for me. When I'm wrestling with this in myself, in my own brokenness, in my own sin, as a believer, as someone who has, has trusted on the death and resurrection of Christ, that it says that, that when we trust on Jesus, he places his favor on us. Okay? Now listen to what this word literally means. It means you're accepted. You, the, the poor, broken, 
captive, bound person. You're accepted by a holy and righteous God. That, that he's pleased with you. Look, and this isn't like based on actions. The central thing here is, is on choice. From someone superior to inferior. From God to us. Choosing to, to, to put his favor on us unconditionally. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've done anything. I mean, think of, of how staggering this reality is. That God has a strong and intense desire for you. That, that you live in a state and condition of approval. That he delights in you. I mean, we say we are saved by grace. Right? We even sang it. And yet, as a Christian, when you fall, how do you feel? It doesn't really feel that accepted. And Whoa. We have no, no way of understanding this. Everything from jobs to families, it's, it's conditioned on how well you perform. But with God, He's saying, yeah, I know you're poor. You're broken. You're completely trapped in sin. And I'm going to lavishly put my favor on you. To choose you to be part of his team. And he's going to delight in you and love you. This is the gospel. Right? This is good news. Because here's the reality. Do you notice Jesus stopped in mid-sentence? Do you see in, in verse 2 it continues? In the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus say that? Why didn't he finish the thought? Because if he would have, he could not have said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Have you thought about that? Because Jesus has existed for eternity takes on human flesh, lives among us, right? And the Bible says that, that all of our brokenness and sin was placed on the perfect Jesus when he hung on the cross. And the perfection and righteousness of Jesus was placed on us, those who trust in him. So that when Jesus sees us and God sees us, he only sees the perfection of Jesus. That's what he sees. And then it says he died on the cross, paying the final penalty of death for our wrongs, rose from the dead three days later, showing that, that the sacrifice had been received and giving us the hope that this life is not all there is. There's more. This life is not all. The pains of this life is not, not the only thing there is. There is an eternity and God is saying, and you will receive my favor uninhibited. That's the hope we have. And after 40 days, he, he ascended to heaven. And that's called the first advent. Now, Jesus will come again in the future. And at that time, he will fulfill the remaining part of this passage, including the day of vengeance of our God. So where are we at? On this continuum, I, I see us right on that little comma. 
we are in the year of the Lord's favor. The work of the Messiah is still being done today. His job description is still being fulfilled today. And so it leads me to two final questions in closing. The first, do we believe and do we proclaim the good news? Because this is what Jesus said, right? To proclaim good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Liberties to the captives. But so often we do this game, right? We say, do you want the good news or the bad news? Right? And we do the same thing with the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. When I was four, I came to my parents and I said, I did not want to go to the devil's fireplace. Fair enough. I remember kneeling by my bed and asking Jesus into my heart. I mean, unless you're a masochist and you give someone the option of burning in hell for eternity or taking door number two, Jesus. <laughs> I was a fairly smart kid. I want Jesus. For 14 years, this is how I thought of God. Not hell. did as minimal as I had to do to ensure that I had that ticket in my back pocket that when I stood before gates of heaven and why should I let you in, I wasn't going to go through door number one, hell. And that's all he was. But really? Is that the good news? That is good. Please don't get me wrong. But the reality is, yes, hell is real, it is eternal, and it is horrific. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is infinitely more beautiful than hell is horrific. Right? That's the good news. Yes, we are poor. Yes, we are brokenhearted. Yes, we take ownership of that's who we are. And God can redeem us. He will buy us back from those prisons. He will piece us back together when the world has crushed us. And that is good news. That is a message of hope. And yes, there is a day coming in the future where there will be judgment. But today, today I stand on Jesus and His favor. That's good news. Do you believe it? You might be like me, and Jesus is just your way of not going to hell. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know where I stood before God for those 14 years. That's a humbling thought, isn't it? That if Jesus is just your ticket to not go to hell... I don't know. We're called to, to, to love God with our whole heart. To revel in His beauty and His grace. And I remember when I was 18 and all this information in my head finally broke through to my heart. And I felt it. A passion and a love for God. Not just because I didn't have to go to hell. But because He was good. Because His grace just amazed me that I realized I didn't deserve it. And regardless of how hard I tried, 
that would never be good enough. That's the hope of the gospel. The final thought is, are you being honest with yourself and and, and with the people around you? Remember that, that, that whole idea of, I'm fine. It's all good. We can even lie to ourselves about that, can't we? Now, I I think I made people a little paranoid in the last service because afterwards, nobody was really willing to say, how are you doing, or say, fine. And then there was a bit of tension there I was feeling. So I I want to be clear. You shouldn't, and I feel bad for the greeters because we might need like a counseling table there. (laughs) There is a time just to be polite and just say, fine, it's, it's okay. And you don't need to tell everybody everything of how you're really doing. But you do need to tell somebody. Right? And you need to be honest with yourself. I mean, we can put on the nice clothes. We can give the nice Christian smile. But at some point, when we're alone with ourselves, how do we really feel? I mean, have you ever been to one of those events? It's great, and it was this great day. And, and, and it, happiness felt so close. And then it ended, and you got back home, and you were sitting by yourself, and all those same feelings come back. That real you, that's part of that brokenheartedness, that's what Jesus is speaking to. And that's what we need to be honest about with each other, people we can trust, with ourselves, and to take ownership of that. And here's the reason why. That in this passage, as it goes, and to say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, it continues to say, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That. Now, now this is the key word. Because remember, it's two, 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 two. Jesus' job description of who he goes to. And then all of a sudden we get this word, that. So that. To what end does Jesus do all of those things? And it says this. That they, meaning us, may be called oaks of righteousness. We did absolutely nothing to be called that. To grow into that. This is all of God. And that's what it says here. The planting of the Lord. And then, key word again, that. Final thought. That He may be glorified. Now that is absolutely amazing to me because so often, what do we do? I think we feel we need to tell people, you know, I was once like that. I was once broken. I was once lost. But now I've trusted in Jesus and life is wonderful. Hallelujah. And it is good. But life isn't all wonderful. Yes, we're freed from the chains that held us captive. Yes, the prison door has been unlocked. 
But we still go back to the prison. We still play with the chains in the dirt. Right? Brokenness takes time to mend. And if we're not honest with our brokenness, if we just try to impress each other, do you know what happens? You're stealing from the glory of God. Isn't that what it says? Because when people see our brokenness and our poverty and our, how we're in prison, and they see what God does for us, what happens? He gets the glory. So if we pretend to be something we're not, but it's a whole lot easier for ourselves. And this is what I'm wrestling with. I don't like being honest. I'm more than happy to shake your hand and say fine and go on about my life. And then I have to shake everyone's hand on the way out and then my mind's already kind of rolling. It's not easy. But it's for the glory of God. My final thought was this. Do not steal God's glory by trying to be righteous in your own ability, by your own effort. But trust in the loving favor of Jesus. Own Own your failures. Allow God to sift your heart. To uncover the brokenness of who He created you to be. That real you that has been crushed in time. And allow Him to piece you back together. Believe in His loving favor. that, That when you trust in Him, we are saved by grace. And we continue to grow by grace. That you rest in his loving favor and magnify the name of Jesus by simply being real. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the incomprehensibility of your love. That you would choose to put your favor on us to redeem us from the reality of ourselves. Lord, give us the strength to to admit our weakness, Lord. To admit the areas of our poverty, of our brokenness, of our lostness. Lord, I pray that you would give us the humility to receive your grace, that we can't do it on our own. Be it those who have never trusted on you, Lord, just break their hearts and turn their eyes to you. Lord, and and to those of us here this morning that, that we have trusted in you, and life isn't quite as good as we had hoped it would be. Lord, help us fix our eyes on you as well to mend our brokenness, to heal our hearts, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage as believers to rest in your unwavering favor. Help us rest there 
to enjoy you, to not simply use you as our means to escape hell, but help us to fall passionately in love with you, our healer, our redeemer. Lord, your, your love led you to the cross. And I pray that you would help us to understand more and more deeply with each passing day how great is your love for us. And help us to rest there. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.